Well, if you've ever taken a road trip with me, you'll discover that I'm a regular user of the U-turn. I have the wonderful ability to zone out on road trips and miss exits so that I need to spend the next 20 minutes figuring out how to turn around. I'm sure you all are diligent users of your Google Maps, your GPS, but I'm a fan of the U-turn for the less observant drivers among us. We all take U-turns, though, from time to time, right? We change our minds, we switch our opinions, find new evidence or some new compelling reasons to believe what we hadn't believed before. We change direction. And in our study of the first two chapters of Jonah, we've seen Jonah literally pull a U-turn. He's run away from God, he's boarded a ship, but God has pursued him and thrown him into the ocean, saving his life at the last second by sending a great fish to swallow him up and spit him out on shore. God's plan has been like a cosmic GPS, tracking Jonah's movements and then commanding him to pull a U.E., change course. And now at the start of chapter 3, which Daniel just read for us, we see Jonah back where he started, receiving a command from the Lord. And as we look at this chapter this morning, we're going to see three things. I'm not going to read them for you now, but be paying attention for them. Three U-turns, three changes by three different people. First, the turning of Jonah, the U-turn of Jonah. Look there in verse 1. Jonah has been spat up on shore, and he hears God utter almost the exact same words he had commanded in chapter 1. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So remember, back in chapter 1, Jonah received that command, but he ran the opposite way. But at this point, lots has happened, right? He's been hurled into a storm. He's sunk beneath the waves. He's despaired of life. He's cried out for salvation. He's been swallowed by a a fish. He spent three days in the fish's digestive system, praying and giving thanks to God. I think we can safely say Jonah has never experienced a more traumatic three days in his life. He's learned a lot. He's seen just how powerful God is, powerful over storms and great fish. He's seen just how angry God is at his sin pursuing him in his rebellion. He's seen just how merciful God is, running after him, not just to bring justice to him, but to bring grace to him. And so now with all of that under his belt, he hears the command of the Lord once again. This time he goes. The author says there, according to the word of the Lord. Jonah's changed direction. Before hearing the word of the Lord drove him to say no, to reject God and to flee in the opposite direction. Follow his own way. Be disobedient. But now, hearing the word of the Lord compels him to obey. God's severe grace and kind discipline have worked on his heart. Not only has God saved him, but now he's restored him to where he was before. A prophet to preach his word. One author writes, Jonah is now as compliant as those other servants, the wind, the sea, and the fish. So just as God commanded him, those other things did his bidding without question. Now a broken Jonah does the same, and he sets out for Nineveh. We don't know where Jonah is after he exits the fish. It's a nice way of saying the fish vomited him out. Uh, But we do know Nineveh was about 500 miles from Israel. So it's likely Jonah had days of walking to do before he reached the city. Think about what was going through his mind. Do I turn around? Do I take another U-turn? I don't want to do this. But he's seeking after the Lord. There in verse 4, he finally arrives, and we're told Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, a large city filled with thousands of souls whose evil had come up before God. 
It was three days journey in breadth, verse three. So some think that means it was a part of a larger metro area with other cities. Genesis 10 seems to corroborate that. Others think maybe it just took Jonah three days to traverse the city. But regardless, Nineveh is a big city in rebellion against God, and now God's humbled prophet goes into its very heart and begins to boldly proclaim what he had rejected before, the very word of the Lord. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Friends, see the turning in Jonah. He's not perfect, that's for sure. We'll see that next week, Lord willing. But the trials God has sovereignly put in his life that we talked about last week have changed him, haven't they? He's gone from fearful rebel with no desire to speak to God to thankful servant ready to preach his word. Christian, don't despair when you experience God's discipline. If you are in Christ, all the punishment you deserve for your sin has been placed on Jesus. And all that's left for you is the kind, sanctifying hand of your loving Father guiding you, redirecting you, stopping you, disciplining you for your good. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Brother, sister, where is the conviction of God pressing hard on you this morning? Where do you feel especially low under his hand? Do you realize he's putting you through that because he loves you? Turn to him. Turn to him. Jonah turned. He changed course because of his pursuing God. And in verse 5, we see a second U-turn in our story, a second turning, and that's the turning of Nineveh. So Jonah has gone from the belly of the fish to the belly of the beast in Nineveh. And he's hollered out a message, not of peace, but of judgment, judgment that's coming soon. Nineveh is evil. Their rebellion has reached the Lord. For chapter 1, we saw that. They deserve his judgment, and so he calls it out. And what does Nineveh do? I mean, I, I think if I read this for the first time, I would expect them to laugh him off, mock him as some religious nut job, maybe jail him for hate speech, right? Verse 5, friends, is utterly amazing. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't necessarily believe Jonah only. They saw Jonah as the mouthpiece of the living God, and they believed God's word. And even more shocking is just how unanimous their repentance is. Across the thousands in Nineveh, the hordes of pagan enemies of God, they turn to the Lord as one man. In verse 5, they call for a fast and put on sackcloth. Who? From the greatest of them to the least of them. And there in verse 7, the king of Nineveh spurs on this great repentance. He issues a decree that's broadcasted throughout the city. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And the king doesn't just proclaim this to his lowly subjects, like they better get their acts together and do this. No, he himself gets up from his throne. He takes off his royal robe. He covers himself in sackcloth. Sackcloth was like coarse goat's, goat's hair material that was just uncomfortable and showed your humiliation. He, he sits down again, not on the throne behind him, but on a heap of ashes. The Scottish theologian from a few centuries back, Hugh Martin, writes, A great and proud city, suddenly smitten into the most profound humiliation, from the greatest of his inhabitants unto the least of them, from the king on the throne to the lowliest citizen, 
is a spectacle to which I suppose history gives no parallel. Nineveh repents and turns to God. They humble themselves. They fast. They put on sackcloth. They sit in ashes. They show how deeply they need the mercy of God in the face of God's wrath. And, and just again, I, I already said this, but who repents in Nineveh? Everyone. The greatest of them to the least of them. The king cries out in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And folks, even the animals are repenting, right? Look there in, in verse 8 and following. Even the animals are draped with sackcloth and given no food or water. Every living thing in Nineveh is humbled before God. Church, here we see in stunning clarity the Christian doctrine of repentance. See there in verse 8 how the people cry out mightily to God, turning to him, and then what? Away from their evil ways. Those are the prepositions of repentance. To and from. That's what repentance is. It's a turning, not only from sin, but to God. It's an about face, a moving from trusting self to trusting God. It's a 180. It's a U-turn. No one can truly repent and then remain in opposition to God. No one can serve both God and self. I mean, it's impossible to lean on two opposing walls, right? If you're going to rest your weight on a wall, you need to do one or the other. And the same is true of repentance, if you're going to repent, if you're going to put the weight of your worship on something other than yourself, you need to do it with God. You either choose God or yourself. It's all or nothing with repentance. And the Ninevites know this. They know they cannot turn to God half-heartedly. So they throw themselves completely on his mercy. Christian, repentance is not something you only do once at youth camp or after a church service. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, almost 500 years ago, this October. His first thesis was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Another author puts it this way, repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. So Christian, if you're united to Christ, you've had all your sin washed away through the cross, but you desperately need repentance every day. You need to grow in holiness. You need to learn like Jonah to reject sin and turn to God each morning, each day. Christian is repentance on the calendar of your heart. Are you every day turning to God? If you're not, you should not be surprised by the gradual turning of your heart to sin. And church, notice two things that we can learn about repentance from Nineveh. Two things I think are important for us to note. First, repentance takes extreme effort. Repentance takes extreme effort. So I'm not sure how many animals were in Nineveh, but I imagine it was difficult uh, to make sure the whole family was fasting, all the kids had sackcloth on, then going out to your stables and making sure the goats and cows and donkeys were doing the same. Repentance took a lot of effort here. And Christian, the same is true for you and me. Turning from our, what our sinful flesh loves will be tremendously hard. Striving to be like Jesus, this side of heaven, is never promised to be easy. 
But these Ninevites took extreme measures. They didn't hear Jonah's warning and respond by praying and committing to read the Bible five minutes a day, even though it's a good thing. No, they fasted. They wept. They had 40 days left, and they were sure destruction would come if they did nothing. And so they pursued God with all they had. They exercised extreme repentance. I don't think we like extremes in Loudoun County in 2017. Certainly don't like extremes in temperature, right? Politics, physical fitness, speaking for myself. We love our comfort. We love our organized routines. Christian, understand your sin is serious. It's the same sin God hated in Nineveh. And again, praise God, if you're in Christ, sin's punishment is no longer meant for you. But the point of this passage is that sin still remains, Christian. Its presence is still with you. And if you don't work hard to kill it, it'll kill you first. If you think the Ninevites were just in an extreme case, listen to the words of Jesus himself. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus isn't advocating physical self-mutilation here. No, he's making the point that sin is so serious, you must take drastic measures to cut it off. The second thing, Christian, I think we should see about repentance here is that repentance must be sincere and from the heart. Repentance must be sincere and from the heart. So the Ninevites are not just repenting on the surface here. This isn't a dress up and look nice for church kind of repentance. Now this repentance, we can see, reached their very hearts. The king called them his, himself to turn from their evil ways and their violence. And so they realized they couldn't just clean up their appearance, right? They needed transformation of their hearts. We so often think God can be pleased by how we behave on the outside. But frankly, he couldn't care less if we're not changed on the inside. The Ninevites could have fasted for weeks. They could have put on a dozen sets of sackcloth and sit on a hundred pounds of ashes and God wouldn't have been impressed in the slightest if he saw their hearts still far from him and proud. J.I. Packer writes, repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. Repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. So repentance, mark my words, repentance will always affect the way you behave. But only after God changes your heart first. Christian, if you come this morning aware of something in your life you need to turn from, maybe just long-abiding anger towards your spouse, sexual sin that seems to have its clutches in you, Maybe just what we're talking about, living as a Christian on the outside, but knowing you just don't have any affection for Christ on the inside. If that's you this morning and you, you've resisted repentance, thinking it too costly, you can keep resisting and you'll become more and more miserable. So feel free if that's your goal. But I urge you, repent. Repentance seems to be such a downer word for us, but it leads to life. Kill your sin before it kills you. That's no joke. If you feel cold towards God, uninterested in repentance, why not take a tip from the Ninevites and fast tomorrow? Monday, July 17, 2017. Take a meal or two meals or the whole day off from food and the time you would have spent searching for food and filling your body with the good food God provides, seek the good Lord that is provided to you in the gospel. 
One author writes, when fasting, we are constantly aware of our hunger. And by God's grace, we can turn that awareness of our hunger into awareness of our desperate hunger for God. Do you lack hunger for God, Christian? Repent and run after him. Take extremes, whatever it takes. This momentary light affliction is producing for us a vast weight of glory. We've seen two U-turns in this text. The U-turn of Jonah and the U-turn of the Ninevites. And the last turning, the last U-turn we see is the most amazing of all. And that's the turning of God himself. So the king in verse 9 wonders, kind of like the captain in chapter 1, if you remember, these are very similar questions. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The only hope the king has to escape the judgment of God is to find refuge in the mercy of God. So he pleads with God to change his direction. The Ninevites are, are not entitled to his forgiveness by any means, and I think they know that. He's well within his rights to destroy them, but they have no other option. He's their only hope. And verse 10 is one of the most beautiful U-turns in all of Scripture. Nineveh's evil has risen up to God. He has sent his prophet to preach their destruction. The clock is ticking until his wrath will blot them out in 40 days' time. But then verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Some other translations will say God repented. We usually don't want to use that word because in English that repentance always means going from bad to worse, but that's not what it means here with God. It means he relents. He changes direction. Do you see what's true in verse 10, folks? God turned. God turned. God turned. Isn't that amazing, church family? The God of the universe heard the call of his enemies and he turned to them in favor and mercy. And we need to be clear about what this is not saying. God did relent. He did change direction. But just understand this. This was not an unexpected turn of events for God. This was not an unexpected turn of events for God. In Numbers 23, we read that God is not man, that he should change his mind. And over the past few weeks, we've made the point again and again from Jonah that God is sovereign, that when he determines something to happen, like the fish swallowing up Jonah, that thing will always be carried out. God can't be stopped. And all of that remains true. We cannot read this verse to mean that God's will was somehow altered in an unexpected way by the repentance of the Ninevites. No, instead, we must realize that the repentance of the Ninevites and the turning of God in response was precisely his plan. The Ninevites here are not pushing God to do something he's reluctant to do. They're not twisting his arm. No, they're proving his sovereign mercy and how that mercy extends even to the most wicked of his enemies. Again, Hugh Martin says it like this. I think this is clear and helpful. It was wicked 
violent, unrighteous, and proud Nineveh, which God had threatened to destroy. But a city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement, and appealing as lowly beggars to his mercy, a Nineveh like that, that Nineveh, God had never threatened. That Nineveh, he visited not with ruin. He had never said he would. See, God's message of judgment preached through Jonah was meant to turn Nineveh from their sin to God's mercy. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's message through his prophets to sinful man operating this way. He will judge, but often in that threat of judgment is provided a way of escape. If we repent, he will show mercy. Take Jeremiah 18, for example. The Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see, God's plan all along was to proclaim judgment on Nineveh so that they would turn to him. He is not a pawn in their hands. He is not at the mercy of their prayers. Quite the opposite. He is sovereignly bringing them to their knees to plead for mercy so he might just shower it on them. Friends, we do not see God's weakness here, but his powerful, unstoppable grace. I think some people might look at God's sovereignty and just be like, I, th I think this discourages my repentance. This discourages my prayer. This discourages my evangelism. But church, God's sovereignty cannot discourage our repentance. Instead, it must enable our repentance. It must, in fact, fuel our repentance. Because why? Because we know God. And we know his character. We know that he is full of sovereign justice and sovereign mercy. And so because we're confident of that, what must we do but just throw ourselves utterly at his feet in repentance, begging for mercy? Because he will have mercy on those who trust in him. If God changed his mind based on what we wanted, he would not be God. But if he ordains to change our minds based on his own sovereign will, well then let us go to him with everything we need. But there's a problem here. There's a problem in this passage in verse 10. Did you see it? It's those last five words. He did not do it. See, God is a perfect judge. That's one of the main themes of Jonah. God is given to compassion. That's another main theme of Jonah. And, and God as judge is confronted here with what in Nineveh? He's confronted with pure evil and he threatens judgment. He's going to bring it. And he doesn't. That's merciful for sure, but it doesn't sound just, does it? We'll see next week that even Jonah's really peeved by this. What are you doing, God? And friends, every time God does not bring judgment on you and on me, 
Every time he doesn't credit our sin against us, God is not just unless, unless someone else bears that justice in our place. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought of it like that. I'm sure that you've heard a lot about God's love and his mercy towards you and how he's willing to wipe your sins under the rug. And that's true. God is just and he has mercy on you and he wants you to come to him and forgive you for what you've done. But do you realize if he does that for you, someone else will need to bear the brunt of your sin in your place. Someone else will need to suffer God's judgment for you. God's forgiveness is a costly thing to God. It hurts God. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that God was willing to send his son to be hurt and to bear the brunt for our sin. That someone else who could bear our punishment for us is Jesus himself, God's own son. God heaped all of our sin on his son. When Jesus died, he died for you and me. And the promise of the gospel is that if we repent and turn away from our rebellion to God, if we trust in what Christ has done, we will be washed clean and forgiven. Won't you come and be saved by this gracious God this morning? And Christian, as we close, are you in a pattern of repentance in your life? Or are you in a pattern of, of stubborn rebellion against it? Sure, you might say the right things. You might give off an appearance of being right with God and others, but is the posture of your heart one of repentance? Don't grit your teeth against the conviction of the Spirit in your heart. Don't wait for someone else to bend before you bend to God and to others. The conviction of your need to repent is not meant to be a downer. It's meant for your joy. To leave the things that are killing you and to turn to God, that's joy. And the wonderful thing that I want to leave you with this morning, church, Christian, brother and sister, repentance is not something you manufacture on your own. Go look for our statement of faith in our church uh, website this afternoon and see that repentance and faith are both gracious gifts and duties. They're, they're given to us to do, but they're given to us to do. Repentance is a grace worked in us, worked in you, Christian, by the Spirit of God. He's promised to do this, and he will complete it until he comes back. He's promised to make you more and more like Christ. So cry out to him in your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn again to your Savior. Remember those prepositions of repentance. Leave what's behind. Leave behind what's killing you and turn to the one who was killed for you. The only one who can give you life. On the last day when we appear before the judgment seat of God, we will all appear there deserving of his judgment. But like the Ninevites in verse 10, we will stand there and look to the throne. And because of the cross, he will not do it. Those five words that seem a problem are the five words that should ring with joy in our hearts. He will not do it. 
Church, may it be that mercy that drives us, one and all, drives us as a church corporately and drives us as individual brothers and sisters personally to repentance this week. Remember the grace of God. Fall at his feet and be ready to receive the the restoring joy of the Holy Spirit as you follow him in obedience. Let's pray. Lord, how weak we are. How rebellious and hard-nosed we can be in our sin. No wonder you feel compassion for us when you see us pursuing what you know will only bring us grief and pain and rejecting you, all because of our hearts of pride. Lord, humble us as a church, as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. Humble us as people. Make us more like Christ. Help us not to just seek repentance than other people. Help us to repent. If we don't see our church characterized by repentance, may we be the first to obey. Lord, make us people, a church characterized by regular, consistent, heartfelt, sincere repentance. And then may the, the smiles that we have on our faces in the coming weeks be one that is not fake, but one that is full of joy because we've seen your redemption in our weakness. You've seen, we've seen your salvation in our sin. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would help us even this week to take the risk of repentance. It's costly. It's costly to expose ourselves to you and to others. But Lord, help us to obey and see your mercy flooding down on our lives. Keep us, we pray. Keep us in daily repentance and daily joy until we see you face to face. In the wonderful name of Christ, we pray. Amen.